It's Valentine's Day on Today in Ohio. We hope you spend it with someone you love. It is Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, who is wearing her heart-shaped dealy bobbers, as she always does on holidays, and Layla Atasi. It's too bad this isn't a video, right, Laura? Because I think people would get a smile. (laughs) (laughs) They'll just have to, you know, too bad they can't all come into the newsroom today because I think it's become a thing. People... People expect it. Maybe you could do a selfie and illustrate the post with the picture of the Dealey Bobbers. Okay, but I'm going to dry my hair and put some makeup on first. All right, let's get going. We finally got a big inventory of the contents of the train cars that derailed in East Palestine. I don't think it's complete by any means, along with the kinds of rail cars carrying the chemicals. Laura, this is more alarming than it's been because they welcomed people back to their homes and it sounds like things are deteriorating. What is going on? Yeah, I don't know how they can claim that it's safe for people to be in their homes because of so many unknowns and because of the chemicals that we're talking about. And you're right, we don't have everything. I think the National Transportation Safety Board is still doing its investigation, but the EPA did release a list of the train cars, car by car, what they were carrying and which ones were breached. And there wasn't all awful noxious chemicals. I mean, there were things like frozen vegetables on this train, but there were Vinyl chloride, which is the one we knew about, the one they had the controlled burn, and three other hazardous chemicals. And that was released into the environment. And remember, there was this massive fire. So we're talking about butyl acrylate, ethyl hexyl acrylate, and ethylene glycol monobutyl. Things that if you can't pronounce them right, you you know that they're probably might not be safe for your body. So they were or continue to be, we don't know released into the air, soil, and or surface waters because of this derailment. And this was a, a letter sent by on Friday by the US EPA to Norfolk Southern. Obviously, that's the owner of the railroad where the derailed train was. And 20 of the 150 rail cars were listed as carrying hazardous materials. What I don't understand about this, this is such a crisis. And it's so scary, especially for people that have kids and and pets and anything, why haven't they had a community meeting to answer all questions, to talk to people, to give them the information? When you hear from people over in East Palestine, what you're hearing is they feel like they're completely in the dark. Where is DeWine? Where is our government that's supposed to stand up for these people? The federal government isn't even doing the job. What's amazing is one person unexpectedly is who is that surprise standout jd vance he is sticking up for the little guy he put out a press release on monday to point out the quote many questions that remain after this plume of black smoke flowed from the derailment site on last week and yeah he's saying that people deserve to know we need answers i mean dewine has gone there at least twice to do a stand-up press conference right so he's shown up but you're right is he talking to reporters he's not talking to people right and without really giving them anything concrete i mean what what is the danger here how much has been released it why are people smelling these fumes if you can smell the fumes you're inhaling something how dangerous is it it's a vacuum of information and i salute jd vance he said i think what everybody over there wants to hear the information is not coming which is not okay and he wants to be the clearinghouse he's saying tell me if you've got injured animals or injured pets or you see anything dead 
at least somebody's trying to represent their interests. Right. Because if you look up these chemicals, they're scary. So we know about vinyl chloride, right? That's a colorless flammable gas used to manufacture plastics. If it's set on fire, which it was intentionally, it can break down into other dangerous chemicals, including one called phosgene, which was used as a chemical weapon in World War II, or sorry, World War One, and hydrogen chloride, which creates hydrochloric acid. And the thing is, so it's in the air, people are breathing it, they're smelling it, and then it goes into the groundwater, right? And people have reported smelling chlorine, seeing dead fish and chickens, and all of this water flows down to the Ohio River, down to the Mississippi River, so every and into the Gulf of Mexico. Everybody should be concerned about this. This is not just an Ohio problem. It's an, ex, an inexcusable example of failure to be transparent. And really, it affects everybody in Ohio because these rail lines run everywhere. True. And if they're going to fail here, what's to stop them from failing with the next one? They all need to get off the stick and follow J.D. Vance's lead. Who thought we'd ever be saying something like that on this <laughs> I podcast? Saw, I saw it called one of the worst environmental disasters in Ohio history the other day. And, you know, Norfolk Southern saying they're trying to collect these leaked chemicals by constructing an interceptor tr- trench and dams against nearby streams and, and vacuuming up pooled liquids. But, you know, it's like once you spill something, it's impossible to get it all back. They've collected 180,000 gallons of hazardous material, and they're saying they're removing soil in and around the derailment area where feasible. But if I were living next to that site, I mean, that would not be enough. And I did see a story somewhere that these at least some of these people who live nearby who were evacuated were extras in the movie White Noise, and which just astounds me because they wow. isn't that crazy? That. Yeah, because it's life imitating art. A lot Exa- of people have noticed that. Exactly. The movie filmed in Northeast Ohio using the old Cleveland Heights Walmart for a grocery store. So I store. guess a part of it was filmed near East Palestine. I mean, it's just really wow. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, I'm spinning it a little bit. We're going to deal with the Larry Householder trial next. It's because of the bombshell that dropped with a witness describing in detail how bribes were paid. Juan Cespedes' testimony did not disappoint, did it? It didn't. And of course, I only have a few details because I I just read this before we came on the podcast because this happened late in the day yesterday. So uh, Juan Suspedes, who is a former lobbyist, he testified that he saw a $400,000 check change hands between another lobbyist, Bob Klafke, and uh, uh, Larry Householder. And as he slid the check, uh, he, you know, in testimony, Suspetta said he was present when Klafke slid the check across to Larry Householder and said, I think this, you know, will help you, you know, with my client's interests. And he testified that Householder looked at the check and said, yes, it does. What What's astounding about that is he's describing a bribe, a $400,000 bribe, which we never heard of before. And Klafke's name has not really been part of it. But when we reached out to Klafke, He said no investigator had ever tried to talk to him about this. He's saying he doesn't remember the check, but Mm -hmm. he's not saying that it didn't happen, which is a very convenient line. I just I am I'm getting more and more perplexed by how this case was investigated. You know, we've had uh, the first energy has admitted paying millions of dollars to bribes to former PUCO chief Sam Randazzo. He hasn't been indicted. Chuck Jones, the former CEO of First Energy, has been incriminated every way you can be. He's not indicted. And now we have 
testimony about what sounds very much like a $400,000 bribe and investigators never talked to the guy who was handing over the check. This is astounding stuff. And this is something that wasn't previously reported. Yeah, I know. I, I, I'm, I'm blown away by what we heard yesterday. It's so incriminating. And Cespedes said, I did a lot of things that were outside the law. He's completely admitting that he was involved in a bribery scheme involving these folks. And I, it's just, I don't understand it. I've, we were talking among ourselves this morning. Does anybody remember a case where there was so much evidence of criminal wrongdoing involving people in which charges weren't filed? And I, I'm, I've been around a long time. I cannot remember anything like it. He's still on the stand today, right? Correct. Yeah. And I think he's his is going to be some of the most illuminating testimony. But yesterday, we had another you know piece of interesting testimony from Anna Lippincott, who was a former householder aide. And she testified that uh, Jeff Longstreth, who was her boss at the time, and lobbyist Neil Clark told her to delete all documents related to her work on warding off a repeal of House Bill 6. She said they were concerned about lawsuits from repeal supporters and what these documents might be, you know, prone to discovery if a lawsuit is filed. And she dropped quite a few little nuggets. She said she uh, be, uh, was paid with money from Generation Now, the dark money nonprofit that was created to funnel these bribes. Uh, she said that blocking repeal became her job, and she also helped raise money for Generation Now. Um, and she uh, said that she deleted all the computer records, but she saved paper copies and emails. Yeah, not a good look when you're ordering people to destroy records. If you haven't done anything wrong, there's no reason to destroy records. Very incriminating day of testimony. The prosecution had a very strong case. I, I don't know where Larry Householder's attorneys can go with their cross-examination of this. I mean, it's all out there. We'll be on top of it. We're also exploring this idea of trying to conceal records, the, the machinery that apparently Householder used in preparing for legal troubles with this case. It's Today in Ohio. We've opened the second round of our Cleveland's Promise series with a week of stories about a critical program in Cleveland schools that is threatened because of the inaction of the Cuyahoga County Council. Layla, what's the program? What's the background? Yeah, for, this, for this first week of content, we've decided to focus our stories on one member of the Elmira Elementary School support staff and her counterparts throughout the district. I'm talking about the, the family support specialist. This is a position that's funded by Say Yes Cleveland, the nonprofit organization that has raised $98 million so far in private donations to guarantee full college scholarships for kids who graduate from CMSD high schools or the partnering charter schools. The family support specialist role is to help get kids to graduation so they can take advantage of that scholarship money. They help them meet the basic needs of their families so the students can focus on school without being distracted by hunger or a lack of clothing or housing instability or, or the fear that they might come home to find that the power has been cut out because their family couldn't pay the utilities. The family support specialists also connect children with medical and mental health resources. They're basically a critical life lifeline. And this year, Say Yes has ramped up to full capacity with one of these specialists in each school. But the program is in jeopardy because of a funding shortfall. And if it doesn't get resolved soon, these support specialists could face layoffs by the end of June. 
And here's the problem. While the Say Yes scholarships are funded by private donations, the family support specialists are covered by public entities. So Cleveland Schools covers a third, Cuyahoga County covers a third, and the final third was supposed to be paid for by a particular federal funding stream that's earmarked for kids in foster care. The way it works is that Cuyahoga County would front the money for that third and then get reimbursed by the federal money. Well, last year it came to Say Yes's attention that the federal money would not be available to them because not enough kids in foster care use the program. So that left them down one-third of their expected funding. And county council did not want to bridge the funding gap. And in fact, they ultimately ended up coming up coming in short of their own obligation to cover a third of the cost. Right, let, let, let me interrupt you because I, I just want to make sure people understand that county council, through taxes that we all pay, funds the Department of Children and Family right. Services, which serves children in need. A huge concentration of those children are in Cleveland. It is the county's job to provide for these kids. It's not, it's not some random question like, oh, we shouldn't spend our money. This is one of the chief functions of government, and it is something that we've all voted to tax ourselves to pay for. What is their justification right. well, for failing you know, to and do council so? members felt like, despite what you just described, it was inappropriate to tap the health and human services levy dollars for this need because Frankly, it was said at, at committee that there are schools in every dis- district that would like some funding and Cleveland schools should be Cleveland's concern. So in the <laughs> that's the that's the, the red flag right. here. When we had a county commission form of government, the three commissioners did not look at this at Cleveland and the suburbs as separate. They looked at the county as a whole. By creating a ward council system where people don't have any ownership of Cleveland, you get idiotic comments like that. Well, these aren't our kids. It's just pathetic that that's where we are. And it really speaks to, we might've made a huge mistake by reforming government. We don't need ward council people. We all have our own council people in our cities. The county government is supposed to be the master planner for the entire county. When they start looking at this parochially, Cleveland kids are going to suffer. And, you know, more than half of Cleveland students have had some interaction with the county's Department of Children and Family Services. So it's important to note that the work of the family support specialist helps prevent kids and their families from becoming even more deeply entrenched in that system and requiring more intervention. Uh, Even officials with the county's Department of Health and Human Services testified at county council to the importance of that and how happy they are to have this layer of prevention in place because that means more thriving families and fewer cases to manage. But that just really seemed lost on county council. You know, at least, I mean, Councilwoman Sunny Simon said during one hearing, she brought up the fact that a small handful of county social workers had left DCFS to work as a say yes family support specialist instead because they pay better. And she balked at the notion of funding a program that appears to be stealing away county social workers. And I mean, that's a yeah. viewpoint that seems very myopic to me. And it, it bears mentioning that months after she made those comments, the county actually decided to increase pay for social workers because they had been just about the lowest paid in the state and no one wanted to work for Cuyahoga County. So it just... You know, the fact that that the county's own social services department was was testifying to how important this preventive layer is, uh, is just so, so telling. 
But see, so so in the end, some help did come. You know, county executive at the time, Armin Budish, gave a million of his own ARPA discretionary funds to this. CMSD is contributing six hundred thousand beyond their usual contribution. City of Cleveland is giving another six hundred thousand in ARPA money, and and Cuyahoga County Executive Chris Renane tells us that later this month he'll be introducing legislation to spend six hundred thousand yeah. in HHS levy dollars to cover a portion. We'll see if that gets a fight with County Council, but that still leaves the family support specialists like a million and a half from making it to the right. end of their fiscal year. And this this council has put money into golf clubhouses yes. and things like that. Look, Peter Lawson Jones, Tim Hagen, Tim McCormack, they never would have said things like we're hearing from this council. They looked at the good of the county overall. Cleveland has the greatest poverty. It has the greatest need. And to think about it like it's a separate entity that's self-governed and is not covered by Cuyahoga County, man, we might need to change the charter and go back to the way it was. This is bad. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is an Ohioan you've likely never heard of on the verge of making a serious bid for the U.S. presidency in 2024? Lisa. It certainly appears that way. And he is 37-year-old Vivek Ramaswamy. He's a Cincinnati entrepreneur who's founded several biotech drug development companies worth about $600 million, according to Forbes. He's also a political gadfly. But uh, Politico reported yesterday that Ramaswamy is compiling a campaign team to run as a GOP nominee for president. But officially, his spokeswoman is saying they're strongly considering a presidential run. But He's hired Strategy Group for Media, which is a GOP consulting firm here in Ohio. He's already hired 20 people for his campaign staff. He has scheduled stops in New Hampshire and, and Iowa, which are early you know, primary states, and plans to go back again. But a little bit more about him. Like I said, he's founded several biotech companies, but he also published a book in 2021 called Woke Incorporated, attacking what's known as ESG investing or environmental, social, and governance investing by corporations who, you know, are trying to make a social impact with their investments. And he's very much against that, as are most Republicans. And he, um, yeah, and he also founded an anti-ESG firm in Columbus called Strive Asset Management, which got financial backing from our Senator J.D. Vance and, and Peter Thiel. Does, is delusion proportional to ego? <laughs> and this guy has no chance of becoming U.S. president. Zero, none. And yet he's going to spend a fortune. He's getting all these people together. We've seen this before. We saw it with Bernie Moreno. Big ego, big delusion that he could be the U.S. senator. I just don't get it. What if you if you're that successful as a business person? how do you get so warped as to think, okay, I could be U.S. president? Well, you know, he was making, after he wrote this book, he was making the rounds on Fox News and all these conservative media outlets. So he kind of became a pundit. So he probably, you know, in that alternative reality, probably thought, hey, I've got a chance here. <laughs> it's just, it's completely delusional. Uh, fascinating. Another Ohioan putting this on the map for the United States. It's today in Ohio. Let's lighten it up, Laura. Lots of police departments have canine units. What makes the Metro Health Police Department dog unusual? 
Well, Hope is part therapy dog, too. So you're allowed to pet him, unlike most police dogs. And he really helps the staff. They call him Officer Good Boy. They keep treats for him. And they say that he really makes their day. So he is a three-year-old Belgian Malinois. And his handler is Officer Anthony Kozika. Uh, and they're on their regular hospital patrol. They stop every couple of feet to say hello to regulars, strangers, patients. Obviously, he is a police dog, so he's trained to aggressively intimidate and guard against assailants. He protects staff and patients and can sniff out drugs. He's already assisted in one arrest, but he also just kind of helps everybody bring down the stress level and de-escalate tense situations in the hospital, especially the emergency department. Have they taken it to the board meetings? Because I think they could use some stress reduction there. I don't think so, but that is a a good question. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Could Cleveland police finally be getting it right when it comes to disciplining officers who break the rules? Layla, what's the latest from the team monitoring the police under the federal consent decree Well, they recently took a sample of 62 officer misconduct investigations to review from the period of March 2021 through March 2022. And it turns out that in the vast majority of these cases, both police chief Wayne Drummond and his predecessor, Calvin Williams, handed down just punishment for a change. (laughs) Aisha Hardaway, uh, the team's leader, wrote in her report that Williams made questionable decisions in four of the cases, but that's only about 6% of the cases that they reviewed. And the department still takes too long to investigate and and adjudicate these. But by and large, their decisions were really reasonable and consistent. The team is now looking at disciplinary decisions that are made by safety director Carrie Howard, who took over from Mike McGrath. And listeners might remember that in 2020, the monitoring team issued a blistering assessment of the way McGrath handled discipline. They said he was way too lenient on officers who were found to have committed some of the worst examples of misconduct. And I mean, the safety director is, is in charge of that like next tier of discipline, making decisions in really serious cases where the officer could be suspended beyond 11 days or, or terminated. And, you know, but of course, just as they figure out how to handle discipline, the authority is about to be stripped from them when the Community Police Commission assumes its role as the ultimate authority on police discipline. This was the body that voters created with issue 24. So the monitoring team also took issue with how long it takes to complete these investigations. On average, we're talking well over a year, sometimes multiple years. Well, it's funny. We talked to Council President Blaine Griffin yesterday, and he talked about the interminable delays we get with anything that goes to the law department. There's a lot of things at City Hall that move slowly. We should mention that this story comes out in the very week that police unions are attacking the credibility of the public safety director because of some comments he said. We discussed it yesterday. I think there's a connection between the severity of the discipline and their Mm. dissatisfaction with Carrie Howard. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Sports betting is hot, hot, hot in Ohio, and that means a whole lot of people have a new paperwork headache. Laura, how come? Because they have to file taxes on it. Gambling winnings are considered income. They are taxed at the federal, state, and local level. So in case you didn't think the taxes were complicated enough, you will get your winnings reported to you on a W-2G. A sports book will send that to you if and the IRS if you win enough money. And we're talking about a net profit of more than $600 in a year from a single sports book or $600 on a single bet. So even if you lose money, 
it's not necessarily going to cancel it all out because you can't write off your losses in local and state taxes, only in federal. And so, and and if you're doing two sports books, good luck. I, it, this seems very complicated. It sounds great to win a lot of money, but it sounds like a headache when tax time comes around. And this is from Sean McDonald, who writes our Saving You Money uh, business column every week. And, and he got into the weeds on this and helped you understand it because I wouldn't want to have to deal with it. Well, here's a question I bet you can't answer. Oh, goody. Uh, wage taxes in the municipalities in Northeast Ohio are on your wages. It's not yes. on investment income and things, but they've all passed a rule to make sure they get the big chunk if you win it big in the lottery. Are they going to be claiming Yes. taxes on gambling as well? Yeah. At local, absolutely, your city taxes. He even has an example. You know, if you work in Brooklyn and you live here, and and the way that the partial credit works, where you owe all your taxes. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it is a nightmare. That's reason enough not to start betting. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. It's not bad enough that huge numbers of Kias and Hyundai's are simple to steal because of a design flaw. Now, owners of the cars have a new threat. Lisa, what is it? That's amazing how scammers, how quickly they can come up with these things. But the Greater Cleveland Better Business Bureau is warning of scammers who are reaching out to people who have had stolen cars, stolen Kias and Hyundais, and saying, we can recover your vehicle within two hours for a fee. And the BBB got onto this from a Facebook post from a Cleveland woman who's posted about her relative stolen Kia Forte. She was contacted by the car tracking team, they said, for 120 $26. We'll find your car within two hours using, you know, the VIN, the GPS and other information. The woman paid. She called two hours later. Where, Dude, where's my car? She said, well, you'll have to pay $86 more despite there was no promise. There was a promise of no extra fees. Now they didn't recover the car. It was later found abandoned off West 88th Street. But the Better Business Bureau said they use several aliases, Car Track Tech, Car Tracking Nigeria, and so on. And he, they note that GPS tracking is not a standard feature in vehicles. And so they can't track your car with GPS if they don't have it. If, if you got a call from car tracking Nigeria, wouldn't you suspect <laughs> that it might be a scam? Right. I thought, wow. I, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they're getting the information from the stolen car reports. I mean, how would they know you had one stolen? And so maybe if they're getting those records from police, police have a record of who these people are. I would hope so. But I mean, like I said, it didn't take long for the scammers to figure out a new angle to this. Yeah. And it sounds so good and you'd be desperate to get your car back and they sound official. You never know. It's a, it's a fascinating twist to this very unusual story. It's today in Ohio. The late Mansfield Frazier was the visionary who started a winery in an inner-city Cleveland neighborhood. What is happening with Chateau Huff since his death? Well, Mansfield Leila? passed away in 2021, and now his wife, Brenda Frazier, is the interim executive director of the Chateau Huff, that urban winery that you were just describing on East 66th Street. And Brenda is a social worker by profession, 
she learned about the winery vineyard business by working it with Mansfield while he was setting it up. And she's still keeping the dream alive. You can go and take a tour of the Huff facility for 10 bucks. A flight of three to four wines is $15 and a tasting of all seven and a meat and cheese board is 30 bucks per person. It lasts about an hour to do the tasting and includes the story of how the Frasers planned this, this, uh, um, this enterprise and and uh, how they're you know set their goals to improve the neighborhood and introduce the winery to the residents. And Brenda Fraser told reporter reporter Paris Wolf that they're they're buying land around the vineyard and winery with the hopes of building a larger facility that's not only a winery but also serves as a community center where people can go for community events and meetings and things like that. But the the Chateau Huff project has a higher mission than just making good wine. The winery supports the efforts of Neighborhood Solutions, which helps at-risk youth and veterans and formerly incarcerated people. So it's so nice to see that it is still thriving and they're looking to expand. And Paris includes a really lovely review of uh, their offerings there. What When this started, it sounded like such a ridiculous flight of fancy, a winery in the middle of of Cleveland at a time when the, the that neighborhood of Cleveland was not in good shape. And it's just turned out to be such a wonderful Cleveland story. All right. I mean, how many cities have this kind of a thing? All, all from Mansfield Frazier's mind. He came up with this, he, he drove it, he made it happen. And it's, it's been there a while now. It's got yeah, some Yeah, Looking at the photos, I was very interested. I, I think I might check it out with my husband one of these days. It, it, what a cool it's idea. Valentine's I know. Day. What better day? <laughs> Head over there this evening. That's it for today in Ohio for Valentine's Day. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. We will return on Wednesday with another discussion of the news. 